so it's been a while. Yeah, it's good to see you, Logan. <laughs> yeah. we, we haven't talked in a while. It's not like we never see each other. Yeah, well, <laughs> see, the, the folks at home think that, uh, you know, they probably assume that we're good friends and we see each other all the time, but this is a, this is a strictly professional relationship. We come into the booth, you know, I say... Hi to the front desk lady, the yeah, front office. Because we have an office. You know, come in, <laughs> sit down at the mic. We do some little opening night notes and we get to it. And then we, you know, shake hands and Glug say away. our goodbyes. And yeah. we, never, we see each other every yeah. other week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's more of a Mythbusters relationship more right, than anything. Right, it's right. more, yeah, it's more Jamie Adams. We work well together. We don't necessarily like yeah, each we don't other. Drink or hang out right. or go to parties or, you know, yeah. do random things together. No, yeah. But it's been almost a month since we yeah. last got together for, well, that for was movies, not anyway. Planned. That yeah. Was, uh, Just happened. Yeah. Uh, we were. We. If you've been following our socials at all, you know we were, and listened to the last episode, you know we were supposed to do the uh, the Vengeance trilogy. Yeah. Which didn't pan out. Which we will do later this year because yeah. Park Chan Wolk's got a big release coming out in September, I believe, October that we're both excited about and yeah. has gotten a lot of great buzz. We even talked about it on a previous episode or two cuz it's Mubi, a big uh, streaming service oh, that yeah. picks up a lot of uh, you know, independent and a lot more niche films. Not that, to be confused with Quibi. No, no. Uh, a ser- service that does not exist anymore <laughs> right. for good reason, but yeah, but movie, which is mainly a streaming service for more art house or niche films, picked up the film for distribution, and it's like the first big film they've done that for. Mm-hmm. And so we were in honor of that, and also the fact that this is going, this is our 50th episode. Right. Which is fucking insane. And I have, I don't think that's really going to sink in until, you know, a month from now when we do our two year anniversary yeah, kind yeah. of episode, whether that'll be a special or just another episode altogether. It's. It's weird to think of milestones like that. Right, right, because you also got to think that's that's 50 uh, episodes about trilogies, trilogies, not including our specials and our frequels. Which I guess would be, like, what, five or six on top of the 50? Uh, Well, between all of them, probably. Closer to 60, would it be? Yeah, closer to to 10 more, 60, something like that. Yeah, so, I mean, because of that, we've had the Vengeance trilogy on our list since we started talking about ideas for the show and when we were coming up with the title for the show pretty much yeah. when it was one of the like one of the initial trilogies that we wanted to do and we're still going to do it we got through the first film yes and uh i did not go through the pain and suffering of watch that first film phenomenal <laughs> film but also very sad very film difficult to not talk about it somewhere in the near right. future right. but unfortunately the second film in that trilogy old boy Hilariously enough, the most popular of those three f- films in that trilogy is nowhere to be streamed. Yeah. Nowhere to be streamed or rented or anything yeah. like that. Which, You'd have to buy a physical copy, which is hard yeah. enough to do yes. on its own. Which could be a possibility that we'll do down the line, but that also means that it'll take weeks just to get yeah. that. And yeah, it happens, especially with foreign films, with like American releases, sometimes distributors lose the rights you know right. it kind of like that's one of the reasons why you know if there's a film you've wanted to watch for a while and you're like huh that's funny i can't find a dvd release or the dvd release i find is from like eight ten years ago it's usually because the dvd yeah. is either out of print or the distributor lost the rights right and with something like old boy it's 
it'll it'll definitely get picked up because it's <laughs> one of Park Chan Wook's biggest films, and we'll definitely talk about it in the future because. I'm sure as hell not going to watch the fucking Spike Lee remake as, <laughs> as a replacement. <laughs> we just watched two Park Chan-wook films on a Spike Lee film in the and middle. That, that is going to be the most painful of the three if we ever did that. <laughs> Certainly an odd trilogy. Yeah, but instead of doing Park Chan-wook's Vengeance trilogy, before we talk about the trilogy of today, hello everyone, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. And this is Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy. And on Odd Trilogies, we take a trio of films where they're tied by cast and crew, thematic elements, or just numerical order, and we talk about each film and discuss the good, the bad, and the weird surrounding them. And for our 50th episode, for our 50th trilogy, we decided, since we wanted to do Korean cinema and we couldn't do Park Chan-wook, what better way to do Korean cinema and introduce more of foreign trilogies that we'd love to do in the future than to talk about another, in our opinion, Korean superstar, yeah. filmmaking-wise, and talk about the first three films of Korean director Bong Joon-ho. Yes, this, this is, is the, the rise of Bong. <laughs> a name that I threw out, like, you know, ironically, thinking Andy was not going to put that <laughs> or go with it, and thank God he did, because now I'll never not think about the fact that I threw that out as a joke, and now it's there. <laughs> well, if it's, it's in you know, the we've, we've done Rise of Last Name for a few yeah, Rise of we've done Rise of Gun. Rise of Zhao. Rise of, well, we didn't do Rise of Cummings. We, oh, that's true. Yeah, but you're, you're more worried about that than yeah, I think yeah. you were for <laughs> Bong, but... Yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, 2000's Barking Dog Never Bites, 2003's Memories of Murder, and 2006's The Host. And most people might know Bong Joon-ho just in a kind of, especially when it comes to modern events per se, is he won the best director for parasite yeah, among, uh, among several other awards. among several others including best picture yeah it was a game changer at least for the academy awards right. especially a year after the green book win for best picture yes, yeah uh so he has so he has a best picture winner under his belt his most recent film uh that is currently in development i think is in pre-production at the moment uh has steven yen tony collette Robert Pattinson on board, yeah. so what better way to just, you know, celebrate a man that is just... Riding high. Riding high at the moment than to talk about the films that started it all for him. Mm-hmm. And to get a little bit of a background on Bong Joon-ho, disclaimer, for, for both of us, we are both going to do our absolute best not to butcher Korean names, Korean right. cities. <laughs> it's something that... We, we are going to do our absolute best not to do, but again, Korean is neither of our languages. Right. So, because of that, just bear with us if something sounds a little off. It's because it is. It's We're kind of reading it phonetically yeah. <laughs> in an American sense. So, you know, to start it off, uh, Bong Joon-ho was, you know, born and raised in Daegu in 1969, his father, God, I had to write all these down because his father was at one point a graphic designer, industrial designer. He was also a professor of art at a Youngnam University and also was the head of the art department at the National Film Institute at one shape or form. <laughs> His mom was a full-time housewife. Bong Joon-ho was the youngest of four kids. Uh, initially, when Bong Joon-ho went to college, he actually majored in sociology 
and then later on in life did a two-year program at the Korean Academy of Film Arts. Uh, he was an activist when he was in college. Apparently there was even an instance where he was tear-gassed <laughs> at a uh, protest. Um, this is also a wild thing, and I don't know if you know about this. Mm. His maternal grandfather, uh, Park Taiwan, was an esteemed author uh, who defected to North Korea in 1950. Wow. No, I did not know that. <laughs> and apparently he was a popular uh, author during the colonial like Japan era. Huh. And, uh, yeah. And also, something that I didn't even know, and something that I'm actually going to be very curious to watch <laughs> in the future, but uh, Bong Joon-ho's only son is uh, Bong Hyo-min, and he's, I think, a year younger than me. Oh. Which, don't even want to un- undo the can of worms <laughs> that does for me personally right. thinking about that. But then, you know, that's neither here nor there. But he is also an up-and-coming film director. He's actually done a few shorts. Um, he apparently, I think it's kind of a Scott Eastwood situation where he did oh, no. not. He did Well, he <laughs> not in terms of act, not in terms of talent, but in terms of like, he didn't want people to give him work because of his ties to his yeah. father. And I think right now he's still pretty up and coming and doing shorts and whatnot. But, you know, maybe down the line we'll be not really talking about it in one of these episodes, but maybe when we're talking about current events, we'll be talking about his first feature, yeah. which I'm excited about. But, yeah, Bong Joon-ho is fascinating as a director because I, f- I think now that we've gone through these three films, because one of the only films I hadn't seen of his is Barking Dog. Mm-hmm. Which I think is your case as well, to an extent, because I think uh, now, yeah, because I think now the only one you, I think the only one neither one of us have seen is Mother, right? Which is comes after the host, and uh, so with Barking Dog Never Bites, that was a film that like I think most people who got introduced to Bong Joon Ho at the time, you know, whether it was the host, whether it was even Snowpiercer uh-huh. when that was given popularity, uh, I think most people are like, oh, I wonder what his first film is, and Barking Dog Never Bites. It's kind of hard. It was kind of hard to find. Yeah. And to be honest, we kind of lucked out, honestly, when we decided to do this instead of uh, Park Chan Wook uh, due to availability. Barky Dog Never Bites was on Amazon Prime for like the last week it was going to be on Amazon right, Prime. Right. We caught it, it was... right before yeah, yeah. it was going to leave uh, one of the streaming services we actually had <laughs> of the 30,000 that are out there. Right. But yeah, Barking Dog Never Bites is. Honestly, it is the weakest of Bong Joon-ho's films that I've seen. And to be honest, that is not a surprise because, one, it's a feature debut. And it's very clearly there are rough patches trying to figure out, like, surrounding the film. It's also budgetary. Like, it's $800,000 American money. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know how much Wong it was. And, you know, for, for the, you know... For future reference, when it comes to this episode, when we talk about, you know, box office or budget, it's going to be in American dollars, obviously. Right. But, yeah, the film is, edit, you know, it's shot in an apartment complex that I don't know if Bong Joon-ho was still living at at the time he was shooting it, but he definitely did live there at one point <laughs> in his life. And, you know, around the time the film had kind of come into fruition, it was, like, after kind of a bit of a dry spell for him where about a decade... He was basically making very little money as a film director. He was doing screenwriter jobs for friends, doing, you know, AD work here and there, which is assistant director work, or, you know, punch-ups for scripts. And I think ultimately at a certain point, he actually had to 
ask friends for help when it came to money or food, yeah. mainly food. And I think luckily one of the two of the films that he uh, helped with the screenplay with uh, had a producer. I have to look it up because I do not want to butcher it. That is the sound of my note taking because I actually took notes today. <laughs> uh, producer uh, Chow Seung Jai, who does not have a Wikipedia page or very little uh, uh, digital footprint, so there wasn't <laughs> much. So I don't know if it was a he or she, but that producer basically helped get funding in his start with Barking Dog Never Bites, and the film is definitely one of the most it's definitely one of the most unique films in his filmography and in, I would say in anyone's filmography to do a dark comedy about a poor university university <laughs> graduate who ultimately kills dogs or adopts dogs that basically yeah. keep him from sleeping right the the premise is basically we have two we have two protagonists per se where we have uh, a poor university grad student who is going through uh, the best way to say is a quarter-life crisis. Yeah, where, he's like trying to become a professor. Yeah, but the only way he can become a professor is if basically all of his friends believe that the only way he can become a professor is if he bribes the <laughs> head of the department to become the new professor. And the only way he can do that is if he gets $10,000, which he does not have of his own money because he's a stay-at-home uh, poor <laughs> grad student. Yeah. While his wife is working all the time, and is pregnant too, I believe. Yeah, I think so. And so, and he doesn't have. Basically, he doesn't have the guts to ask her to take her money because he doesn't want to do that, and to basically take out whether it's you know a mix of you know masculinity, uh, just a crisis of you know faith and purpose and whatnot, ultimately leads him to basically take out his frustrations on the local <laughs> dogs. Yeah, the apartment dogs. The, the neighbor dogs, which on the other flip side, protagonist-wise, we have uh, Baiduna, or Baiduna, who is, I think most people would mainly know her from Cloud Atlas, uh-huh. you know, the Wachowski film. Right. Uh, big Korean actress, and but it's not the last time we'll be talking about her because right. she's, she's in a later in a few film. Of these. She's in a few. But uh, she plays someone who works at the apartment complex the grad student works lives at and is ultimately, you know, cut and dry an idiot. She's a very hopeful, optimistic person, but is very, not very smart yeah. overall. But once she basically sees this grad student throw a dog off a roof, <laughs> it basically makes it her duty to find and capture the dog napper. Right. And that's the plot. It's really, it's one of those films where it is about a little under two hours. Yeah. It takes about 30 minutes to kind of get you into the idea of, oh, so this is what the film is going to be. Yeah. Because the film is very clearly, has an idea of what it wants to be, but it's taking a little too much time to kind of get to that point. Yeah, it's kind of like setting up this little corner of the world that these characters are existing in. Yeah, and And establishing all these different players like the basement janitor security guy yeah and a couple others and yeah it, it does take its time to really get into the plot if you can really call it that yeah it's it's, it's kind of more of a i don't know uh, slice of life isn't quite right but it's like mm-hmm. it's it's sort of just a just an interesting weird spend some time with these characters and 
go through some strange hijinks with them. Yeah, the best modern example I could think of to really compare this to in some way that I know of. And again, there I haven't seen the entirety of these brothers' filmography to really say if there's a better version of it. But in my mind, this very much reminds me of the Coen brothers' Burn After Reading. Oh, yeah. Where this is a... Where Barking Dogs Never Bite is a dark comedy where it really, since it's low budget, doesn't necessarily leave its apartment complex a lot of the time. Yeah. It's making a story about these people kind of cramped and like kind of in a stable environment and the unstable things they do while in mm-hmm. said environment, leading to wacky, very dark things that, again, remind me of, you know, with Burn After Reading, it's the type of film where if it's not, if you're not on the wavelength that's throwing out, that's yeah. not entirely on you and it's not entirely on the film. It's, you gotta be in the right mindset to watch a film like this because the film's not overly graphic when it comes to the the dog killing or <laughs> the uh, the dog napping or anything like that. It's actually done pretty over the top. For, for as, as Over a top is like a, a low budget film could be. Yeah. And doesn't, isn't super graphic in any way, but it is still a film about a poor grad, you know, dog napping, mm-hmm. <laughs> and ultimately killing a dog. Yeah, there's thankfully not many dogs die in this film, <laughs> but there are there are two notable deaths. There's and a one, few, there's a few attempts on yes. dogs' lives. Yes, yeah. there are a few attempts. The, the I mean, this is the type of film where it throws out uh, the idea that there is a janitor who is super nice, but also <laughs> has the hankering for dog. As food. As food. So he, and like, finds dogs and brings them down into his basement and cooks them. And cooks them in a stew. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, I know there are people who probably hear that and go like, wow, that doesn't sound funny at all. <laughs> and yeah, it's it really, it, it works in terms of the execution because again, Bong Joon-ho is a man that he has said constantly, I think throughout his career, he's like, in my opinion, when it comes to humor, it really just accents the drama and the suspense much more. And to be honest, I, I don't know if I can make a film without putting some dark humor in it because that's just kind of who I am. Yeah. And so, like, you know, in the later films we'll talk about today, they do dark humor much better. Yeah. And this is definitely a a man who is in his early 30s learning about the the balance between tone. And I think the balance here is not bad, but it is definitely rough. And I think that's most of the film's issues is that it does – I think the film is really good and does work, but – it is rough around the edges in most places. Yeah, I think it definitely feels like he's working out his style, yes. and both in oh, yeah. like writing and directing. Because, like, you know, obviously his later films, like we've said, um, have a lot of dark humor in them, but also do have a like pretty high level of drama and tragedy to them. Yeah. Um, and not just the next two films in this trilogy, but his other films too. Um, and they kind of insert in those moments of humor for, you know, levity or like he said to, to kind of accent the drama in this, it's a little bit more like there's not really a ton of heavy drama to accent. It's just kind of like, 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, subsequent scenes of kind of quirky, dark humor or just weird happenings. There's mm-hmm. not a lot. There's not like yeah. a lot of melodrama to it. It's all kind of played very deadpan. It, it very much feels like a lot of the black comedy definitely comes from how do these people respond to mundanity? Because yeah. the majority of the film, pretty much what's happening to these people are very, very mundane things. Yeah. It's not having a lot to do, not having a lot of money to do anything other than just to sit around and think about how you don't have enough money. Or, you know, in Baiduna's character's case, you know, working a job that you're just not really cut out for, or really want to work. But ultimately, again, you need that money. And you have a, you know, you're either hanging out with your friends or you're sleeping or you're eating or you're drinking when you can. And it's all about just kind of like how do these people handle <laughs> those moments, their feelings, and what do they kind of put it out into the world? Yeah. And how do they respond when they realize that there are very weird things happening around them they just have never noticed? Yeah, there's kind of – there's a little bit of a feeling of like uh, – that this movie is almost a little bit about like the weird darkness beneath the surface of everyday oh, yeah. life. Oh yeah. Cause it's, these are very like, yeah, like you said, mundane situations, everyday uh, troubles and everyday goings on. And then, Oh, in the basement under your apartment, there's a dude cooking dogs. Like, <laughs> yeah. And there's, a, and there's a homeless man that lives in the apartment complex and no one knows about him. Oh yeah. Literally he comes and goes. And every time he leaves, People just go like, "What happened to my thing?" Oh, I, I guess I left it somewhere <laughs> else. Like they just don't recognize him. And the one person that kind, the only people, two people that acknowledge him for the majority of the film are the two protagonists in two yeah. vastly different ways. Where one of them is because our uh, protagonist, the grad student, accidentally runs into him in just a heap of trash that he was sleeping in, and it causes him to basically run away and knock himself out. And then with Baiduna's case. She ultimately, in the climax, saves a dog from the homeless man because the homeless man's just hungry. Yeah. And he heard dog was pretty good, so why not try the dog? Like, that's... <laughs> there, it's it's a film that really is just, you know... It does have, I think, a decent amount to say, and I think it... By the end of the film, I think one of my favorite... I think my favorite shot in the film is the last shot that we get of the grad student because... A big part about the grad student's character, it feels like, is it's a person who feels like he has to be forced to be corrupt, and so he's ultimately yeah. corrupting himself. To basically, he it's very clear that you know the political there is social commentary in terms of the fact that like there's this whole group of people that went through grad school, did everything they were supposed to, but ultimately right. the only way he can get the job it's not because of experience or the time he's put into it it's money and bribery and you know crime and so ultimately it seems like it's a film about a man who is not only kind of doesn't know where his place is uh professionally he doesn't really know where his place is at home either Mm. because the relationship with his wife is not healthy (laughs) yeah she's kind of very over him not yeah. doing anything. It's it's a very she's very dominant over him, but yeah. also to a point that's fairly toxic. Right. And he's not he's pretty toxic back at times. And then ultimately it leads to a point where she admits to, you know, she's basically working her ass off and ultimately gets laid off 
just so she could pay his professor to give him his like his right. lecture job. It's pretty clear that like while that is kind of a uh, you know selfless thing to do, it ultimately feels like it's not something that she also wanted to do. It's almost like at a certain point socially she was kind of forced to do that because maybe it's because she's the woman and she has to stay home with the kid and knows that he doesn't want to or there's a lot going on at the you know kind of under the surface and it's one of those things where it's like it's a film that I think lingers really well after watching it but as you're watching it especially at the beginning it's just like a wow this is very unique and odd and I'm just trying to figure out where this is going and by the time it gets to where you know it's going it's like oh cool but ultimately I think that first watch is just basically almost like feeling your way through blindly right as like in terms of like how am I feeling about this film yeah and where where you feel at the end I think ultimately you know means whether you should rewatch it and I think you'll get more out of it on a rewatch or you're just kind of like ah it's not for me and then it's hey it's not for you I know a lot of people that are like that with Burn After Reading or like the Coen Brothers dark yeah. comedy stuff because dark comedy is a bit of a niche for a reason it's hard to kind of do that and even when you do it well it's sometimes not enough for people <laughs> yeah yeah and if there's anything that I really like about this being his debut is that this doesn't feel like a film from somebody who doesn't have a personality or doesn't have an idea of what they want to be. Like, it's very clear that Bong Joon-ho... Yeah, Jun-ho you see a very unique type of storyteller in yeah. this movie. I mean, it's and it's also like there are some unique choices camera work-wise, editing-wise, directing-wise, almost to the point where the next film we, we'll get to pretty much strips a lot of that. And is a better film overall, much better film. But at the same time, it's noticeable how much kind of was stripped away from barking, like going to Memories of Murder from Barking Dog. Because Barking Dog just has very clearly, because of its constraints with its budget, has to do creative ways to yeah. kind of keep the energy going and to keep the plot energetic. And that leads to fun moments like the the toilet paper bet. <laughs> That's a fun moment. Uh the whole uh, Baiduna saving the dog is supposed to be like a very heroic moment, but it's also very silly because, yeah. of, you know, the the elevator's too long or the way <laughs> you get around is kind of silly. And overall, it's a really fun film. And if you have seen Bong Joon-ho's other stuff, I think you can watch and appreciate his first film. But it is definitely his weakest film. And that's coming from somebody who hasn't seen Mother. I will admit that, but I also think from what I've heard of Mother... I feel like I'd, it's it's an easy probably better. <laughs> it's it's probably a cold take to say that his his feature debut is his weakest, yeah. but ultimately is still really good. And to be honest, it was worth watching that because the jump from uh, Barky Dogs to Memories of Murder in 2003 is staggering in a lot of ways. <laughs> so with Barking Dog Never Bites, when the film comes out, it is a flop. Uh, it, I think a total of 100,000 people in Korea saw it, which wasn't really enough to make its money yeah. back. So I think even Bong Joon-ho said it was a flop. But hilariously, two years after it was released, due to uh, you know foreign markets and just... Being I think, on the also festival circuit. Festival too. circuit. It basically broke even two years <laughs> after its release. And I think thankfully, even though the film didn't do well financially, critically it got a 
a good amount of buzz, especially at festivals as well. And I think it ultimately gave Bong Joon-ho enough cred and enough of a, you know, you know, confidence to keep going. Yeah. And ultimately leads to what I think many would argue is one of his best films. And an mm. already pretty phenomenal filmography. But his second film, Memories of Murder, is based off of a stage play based off of a the real-life serial killer that South Korea had from 1986 to 94, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And it's one of the it's one of the only serial killers I think Korea's ever had. Right. And it's their most notorious because he was never caught caught officially for this crime. At the time that the yeah. film was made, no one knew who the person was. As of 2019, it is it is suspected that the, there's a man who's serving life in prison currently who admitted to the murders and is like it would. It would, sense. <laughs> it would make sense, honestly, in a yeah. lot of ways, especially with what, at the time, inspectors and detectives and the police assumed of yeah. the killer. But yeah, the film is basically following two detectives, one who lives in the small town that the murders are happening, and one who lives in Seoul, who's come down to the small town to help the local police department, basically try and catch the killer. And it is just... I mean, the best way I can probably describe it is Fincher-esque. Like, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's, very, it's not it, trying to be a Fincher film no, because it, it's it, it's full-blown Bong Joon-ho. Again, like we said earlier about, like, you know, the dark humor, the social commentary, it's all there. The dark humor is much better in this film. It also comes, hilariously, the dark humor comes in more unexpected places in this film than in Barking Dogs yet hits a lot better because of how it's executed. Yeah. I mean, there's the, in the second murder, there is long shots basically of cops trying to keep people away from the crime scene and everybody who tries to come down a slope to get to the second crime scene slips and falls <laughs> on their ass every time. Yeah. And then it gets to a point where they have to address that in the film yeah. because it's just so silly how it happens. But yeah, the film is... It's cut and dry that it's about a serial killer trying to catch a serial killer and the two leads uh, I gotta I'm gonna get my page uh, there we go yeah because I, I was actually looking this up because this is this is gonna be we're gonna talk about him a lot with the host as well because he's one of the biggest parts about the host mm-hmm. but uh actor song Kong Ho who is just I would consider I would assume. And this is, again, coming from somebody who lives in America. Yeah. But the man just seems like a Korean superstar. Yeah. It, to a degree. Because it's seen, I have seen this man just spread across so many different directors of different Korean films. Yeah. And he just fucking kills it Yeah, he's in so time. many of like their most, at least internationally, popular films. Yeah. I mean, he is... He has been in, I think at this point, if I'm thinking... He's been in a majority of uh, Bong's films. Yes, he's. I, th- I think he actually is. I think he's a very small part in Okja, but he is yeah. in Okja. Uh, 
Yeah, he is. Because at the time, because I mean, was... he's he's even in the first film of the trilogy that we were originally going to do, the yes. Vengeance trilogy. No, he's he's a... in Park Chan Wook's the... first, or not his first film, but um, the first film in that trilogy. No, that's. I mean, the thing about Song Kong Ho is kind of similar to Bong Joon Ho is just his career didn't really take off until the mid older, to late nineties yeah. when he was in his thirties, and it wasn't until he started collaborating with Park Chan Wook. Yeah. That he did a, I the name escapes me off the top of my head, but basically in the late '90s, early 2000s, Park Chan Wook did a North Korea film, oh. and Song Kang Ho was one of the leads, and apparently that was the film where it's like, okay, like this guy needs to just fucking be in everything, because <laughs> like he was getting like smaller roles in the '90s that like people were like, hey, that guy's really good, yeah. I want to see more of him, and then he got more and more, and then you know blew up with uh, that North Korea film. Right. And then ultimately after that, he's in Sympathy of Mr. Vengeance. Like Andy said, that's the first of the Vengeance trilogy for uh, Park Chan-wook. And then that's 2001. Right. And then two years later, his first collaboration with Bong Joon-ho and will not be the last because he's also in The Host. Yeah. He's also in uh, Snowpiercer. Fucking kills it in Snowpiercer. In a film... he in Mother? I he might be okay. in Mother. I don't know for certain. Again, neither yeah. one of us has seen it, but I hope so because <laughs> that man is a treasure, and I will cherish any time I see him on screen. Uh, and he's also in Parasite, who was robbed of a Best Actor win. Yeah, <laughs> because that man again, probably just because of that movie the attention yes. is split so widely amongst yeah. the ensemble. It's honestly but... one of the only films. It's one of the. F- one of the modern examples of where I think the uh, an ensemble category should be in the fucking Oscars. Yeah. Because if the BAFTAs do it, if right. other if other award ceremonies do it, I feel like it makes sense to do an ensemble because there is a difference between like, you know, praising the lead or supporting actor and actress and just like basically giving an award for the fact that like you can't give an award to every single person in an right, ensemble, right. but you might as well just award for the fact that collaboratively they all just fucking ruled in that film. Yeah. And Parasite was one of them in that case. And with Song Kong Ho with Memories of Murder, what's phenomenal about his character is that he is, to a degree, a bumbling detective. Yeah. He is He is a man that is very clearly, again, to have another, I guess, an American counterpart to some way, shape, or form is... Uh, to an extent, like Tommy Lee Jones's character from No Country for Old Men, but yes. younger, where it's basically like. But he's got that like old world instinct yes. uh, in his yeah. policing work of like I, you know, he's got mm-hmm. the whole thing where like I look into a man's eyes and I know, yeah, whether or not he's done the crime. And he's completely confident with that, and it does work at one point for him. <laughs> yeah. And so like a lot of people start to be like, oh, is he I guess telling he the does truth? Know. But ultimately, his his arc is mainly just a man who has been a solid, strong cop for what assumes to be his majority of his life. But ultimately, this this serial killer and the failings of the police department ultimately lead him to realize uh, that you know it's this is a new era, yeah, and I don't think kind of he's, how unprepared he is yeah, he for is, stuff like this. He is not prepared for this, and yeah. I think another reason why this works too is. You know, because uh, I think his name is, I think it's Park. I think yeah. they call him Detective yeah, Park. Park. I'm going to slowly move my notebook <laughs> over so I can. Uh, yes, yeah, it's Detective Park and Detective Sayo, who yeah. is the sole detective. What's cool about that, too, is, you know, Park and Sayo hilariously 
are on vastly are on opposite sides of the spectrum in terms of how they are how they do their detective work, but ultimately have the same problem in terms of with Park. He sees a serial killer as like it's got to be like black and white. This guy cannot. There's there can't be any gray with this guy. It can't be that. It can't be that complicated. Right. While as with Sayo, it's the opposite thing where it's like it can't be that simple. It can't be. It can't be. It can't be like this. It, it has. There has to be a pattern to something, or like maybe I don't know. There's got to be something here. And ultimately, both of them come to the same conclusion. Neither one of them are up for this task. Yeah. The the serial killer they're going up against is practically flawless. Mm-hmm. Is this evil, malicious, hurtful person that is also just leaves no trace. Yeah. And, well, and the police force is like really poorly equipped too like they don't have up-to-date technology or resources they're just very poorly funded and that sort of thing and there's also an element of the film that they kind of explore as they go along of like the public perception of police is not great Mm -hmm. at the time um so they're also fighting against that um but yeah it's it's basically this combination of a very calculating killer and like very under-equipped police force yeah and to an extent too it's kind of crazy about the film is that when it comes to the deaths themselves and the murders and you know just basically the the scenes themselves that lead up to it most of that is done off screen yeah like what's kind of crazy about the film and i think is shows just how good of a fucking director bong joon ho is and just how good his crew was for this film is the fact that like this is the film where they can talk about a corpse not show the corpse for the majority of the scene as they talk about certain things, but as soon as it cuts to just a shot of the corpse's dead eyes or, you know, the strangling marks or where they found the body, just for a split second, even though you only saw it for that second, that fucking frame burns into your brain. Yeah, it kind of enhances the horror of it. it, Yeah, and you know exactly what they're trying to do, and it is extremely effective. And the one time, the the only two times that you kind of see a kidnapping lead up into a murder happen, it is fucking terrifying. The one scene that sticks out the most is there is a scene where a woman is just walking by a field... And the killer is whistling and humming to fuck with her. And as she is trying to find out where this guy is, you just see a figure rise from a field. You don't see a face. You don't see hair. You don't see any kind of descript details. It is just a void. Mm. And then he just goes back down at his own pace. It doesn't, it feels like, it genuinely feels like a predator going after his prey. In a very, in a very kind of nature, in a natural sense, and it makes it all the more tragic that this actually happened, and the fact that pretty much everyone involved that were trying to stop him were, you know, dedicated, really wanted to stop, and really wanted to bring this fucker to justice, but, but also, ultimately they yeah. were all inept in their own different ways. Yeah, had no idea how to face it, mm-hmm. and it leads to just. A film that is, it. I mean, 
it's hard. It's not taking from Seven, and it's not taking from Zodiac because again, this film comes before Zodiac. Before Zodiac. But it and is I, very similar in a lot of ways. I, I don't know if Zodiac to, was at all inspired by this. To but. a point, I think Bong Joon Ho is actually thrown shade in a silly way uh, to Fincher because it's hard now going like rewatching this film not to watch this and be like, "Fuck, Zodiac kind of takes a lot of its notes from yeah. this film." The pacing, the way that it shoots, especially when it shoots the Zodiac stuff, just how plain yeah. and simple it does the the murders. Mm-hmm. It feels very uh, methodical and uh, sterile in a gross way, which is yeah. kind of similar to well, how this got film the, handles it. The central, you know, detective or investigator who like can't let it go, yeah. and is just lets it kind of consume him i think that's maybe a, a larger element of zodiac than it is in this but like you still have yeah. that kind of well zodiac is also three hours long. Yeah. yeah so it can do that but yeah i mean memories of murder is i feel like especially in this day and age uh with you know how big you know you know true crime documentaries are and definitely mindhunter speaking of fincher just how big mindhunter was to the mm-hmm. point where like people are pissed there's not a third season and yeah, you know right. fincher's having a hard time trying to get any kind of funding from any other place to do something like that but in a time where i feel like you know the love of true crime and just like detective drama stuff is like kind of at an all-time high it's you know i feel like this is an easy recommendation for most people and even people who are not super into that if you're just into good fucking movies yeah this is a good this is a phenomenal fucking film this right. is just you have a talented ensemble across the board all the detective stuff is if it's silly it's done incredibly well you know it's a film that is very much if you ever have a vibe of like is this film trying to make me feel weird about how they're handling this because <laughs> the cops torture their suspects yeah it's not horrifying of the police's no, methods at all one of the coolest things too about the film is i think is something that probably in future viewings if i if we did more research in terms of like where korea was at the time uh-huh. this was happening it definitely feels like it's also a film that is a point in time in Bong Joon-ho's mind in terms of the era of just Korea in general, where not only is it like, you know, the like the movement to get democracy in South Korea at the time, it's also the fact that, like, there was, there was like, a police controversy with, a, I think, a police officer killing a suspect or killing yeah. somebody at the time, like, with, I think, no, it was torture. It was a, it was a police, it was an officer that was... Uh, being arrested for torture methods. Yeah. Which, you know, shows, you know, where there were at the time where it's like the public is, of course, not okay with that. But you're following protagonists who are supposed to be the heroes, and one of the <laughs> heroes' best friends, his main move is to put a sock on his shoe and just kick the shit out of any suspect. <laughs> yeah, he they puts find. a sock on his shoe so that it doesn't leave scratches. <laughs> yeah. And so ultimately, you have a, you have a film that is not. It's not demonizing its main characters, but it's also not glorifying them. It's just yeah, making it's... it pretty clear that, like, these are not awful, evil men trying to find an evil person. These are just men who are clearly either not in the right headspace or just inept. Yeah. To an, to an, an inept enough to not, you know, grasp the methodical nature of this horrible killer. Yeah. Ultimately leading to a film that 
ends on just a very somber note, but just a, oh, such a fucking good one. Just yeah, well, because it you know brings back into play the whole eye contact yeah. thing that that Park thinks he has, and then in the end he can't he can't tell like he, yeah. he gets a guy and gets eye contact with him and he's like he fuck starts, i don't know which is also i think a great move that shows that that's when he decides to kind of leave it seems clean like himself that's kind up of, too yeah clean himself up and leave the force yeah it almost seems it's almost kind like inadvertently shaking yeah it leads him to be like shit i'm not as i'm not as rock solid in this job as i thought yeah and the one guy that i thought was better at this job than i was nearly killed a suspect <laughs> right right that wasn't proven at all yeah. Anything, yeah. Was, yeah it's it's one of those things where it's like the film throws a lot at you and unlike barking dogs i think pretty much hits all the notes incredibly well right. and gets across a lot of its social commentary its dark humor and also another big part of bong jun ho films are it's like unsung hero protagonists or just unlikely protagonists yeah and in a film like this with a detective drama Obviously, the protagonists are going to be detectives. Mm-hmm. But in a film that is based off of a true story, it is kind of wild to see. Uh, it is adapted from a play. But a film that's based off of real events have a main have main characters that are kind of not treating this as seriously as they should. Right. Where they feel like, oh, this is really just a one-off. Well, nah, I mean, now it's a two-off. Now it's just a weird pervert that's been doing this. <laughs> right. um, three, yeah, three is a dev. Oh, he's, <laughs> it's still going, and it's like, wow. If this is if this is genuinely how it was, then damn. But also at the same time, it's like as a film, it is very uh, entertaining and also very engaging to watch. You know, the very hard-boiled cop kind of unravel, and the kind of the goofier, inept detectives who are way too confident in their own skills, realize that just the arrow that they were going to, the golden era of their police work is gone. Yeah. (laughs) And now it's like, where do we go from here? And the film does wonders with that. And ultimately it leads Bong Joon-ho to kind of make one of the biggest films of South Korea at the time. Like, I think the film... I think it's, I don't know if if I can say for sure that it's millions, but thousands and thousands of people definitely saw this film at release just of word of mouth. Because again, this is a film that is a, it's a big deal. It's, it's similar to having a film about the Zodiac or having a film about another infamous serial killer in America. Like it's, this is a, this is not a usual thing for Korea to have a serial killer true event story. (laughs) So when you do make one, you gotta make it good, and fuck, Bong Joon Ho makes a phenomenal film. And yeah, one of, one of the best in the genre, I would say, especially sure. in a modern example. Right. Well, and I, I mean, it was received so positively. I think it went on to win like the Korean Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Director. I think yeah, it, w- it wins a bunch of awards in I think its home country, and I think in other yeah. festivals and. Ultimately, I think the film does pretty decently well overseas as well, whether it's limited runs in France and mm-hmm. in the U.S. It, it's also, I think, it's the first crossover hit to a degree for Bong, which only gets bigger yeah, with our final film. Yeah, in his next movie. Because in our final film, we have a film that is, it's the biggest budget that Bong Juno will, will have of these three films. It looks like it. It does. <laughs> uh, it's... You know, Barking Dogs was eight hundred thousand. We didn't say when we talked about memories, but Memories of Murder is about two point eight million, okay. which is, you know, 
a lot more <laughs> than yeah, the 800,000. Yeah, it goes a long way. And uh, with The Host, the third and final film of this trilogy of The Rise of Bong, it is $12 million. Yeah. And to see $12 million go this far is impressive. Yeah. Just, to me, again, this is this will be interesting to hear what you think about this, uh, because... At the time that we're recording this, I don't know if I even know fully what your opinions are on this one because I think we we just saw this one very recently. Yeah, we kind of watched it and it was a late night and we just called yeah. it a night after we watched it. Yeah, because it was a long day for you. Yeah, because you had you had also seen another film that day and you had to write a review <laughs> later and yeah. that other that film you saw was not <laughs> your favorite and so ultimately by the time we got through the host it was like all right had a good time out. Yeah. So, I mean, you know how I feel about it because yeah. by the time that this review comes out, I've kind of posted in our social media. Yeah, uh, I saw your your letterboxed blurb yeah. on it. I actually didn't realize you, and I'm not saying this critically, but I didn't realize you loved it that much. I, like, it's a five star movie for you. Right? I was surprised as well because yeah. this film is for. I mean, this is about the third, maybe the fourth or fifth time I've seen this. This was my first Bong Joon Ho film. Okay, yeah. Because this was a film that at the time this had come out, uh, I was getting more into monster stuff, mm-hmm. liked Godzilla. This is an era, again, when it comes to monster movie stuff, because The Host is a monster movie. Yeah. Which is, uh, at the time, too, Bong Joon-ho even said that like he had friends that were kind of looking down on him for wanting to do a monster movie. Sure, sure. And that actually kind of affected him in terms of how I mean, especially he approached after it. coming off of basically Korean Zodiac. Like, yeah, To yeah, then go, yeah. oh, I'm going to do a genre movie, like a, yeah. you know, pop genre I'm type gonna, thing. I'm going to do a film with the guys that helped do the Lord of the Rings special effects. <laughs> like, right. it's, it's like, what? Okay. But... Yeah, no, when I first saw this film, I thought I thought it was great, and I still think it's great, but I think it's just with this most recent viewing, there I just everything about this film works for me. Mm. I I just think for this film, it's a 5 out of 5 mainly because this is a film where I can look at clearly dated CGI of a monster, and it doesn't phase me because yeah. I am just so enriched and engrossed in the family dynamic. Right. Well, the, and the, the tension of all the monster scenes is done so well. Yeah. It's it's also a film that doesn't shy away from the monster, which is something that Bong Joon-ho is also a big yes. proponent of. He is someone who hates the... Like hide the monster yeah, hide for the 90% monster of the movie. Yeah. yeah. I which, was surprised by that, yeah. too, because, I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> 10 minutes into the movie, you see the entire monster just wreaking yeah. havoc. It is insane how this film, because again, I knew how well this film starts because it's one of, I mean, I love the start of this movie. It just yeah. goes. You get an incident where you see a, <laughs> you see an army base in Korea, basically an American soldier kind of pull rank and push a South Korean officer to pour dangerous chemicals down a drain in yeah. the early 2000s, which is based off of real events. Yeah, it was an actual Korean insane. mortician was ordered by U.S. military to dump formaldehyde in the river. Formaldehyde, damn. Um, and took that, turned it into, honestly, just a banger of a monster movie that, yeah. like, to me, like, I feel like there are two approaches you should have with a monster movie. One is you go the Gojira route, where you just, like, 
full-blown social commentary. You take it serious as possible. And even though it's the fact that it's a giant lizard, or it's, in this case, a giant tadpole monster, yeah. uh, you take it seriously and you focus on the drama surrounding it and the tragedy surrounding it. Or you do, like, the Godzilla sequels where it's just you go, like, full tilt. Monster you know, mash stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. This is, you know this is silly. You yeah. know this is, like, rubber guy, like guys in rubber suits. You know, fuck it, we're going to go for it. Yeah. And this film is just, this is a film that doesn't not doesn't shy away from the monster because in all honesty the monster looked great at the time definitely dated now because <laughs> it is now it's nearly two decades old right which is wild to think how old this film is but it doesn't matter to it doesn't really matter at least to me because the drama the story and the characters are so tight mm-hmm. it's such it's so much fun to watch the premise just be at its point a dysfunctional family fights a monster because they're trying to save the protagonist's daughter right. who was taken by the monster yeah. and ultimately it is that straightforward but it's ev- it's everything that kind of gives it the filling it's it's all mm-hmm. the detail in the the social commentary, the dark humor, right? Song Kong Ho by Duna, the f- the grandfather who is an actor. Let me look through my notes again. He plays the uh, dog eating janitor in yeah. in Barking Dogs Never Bite, and also plays the first police chief before the uh, police station gets a little shook it up in uh, oh memories shook up in memories. Yeah, he's in that too, but. Uh, hmm. Byung Hee Bong, who plays the grandfather of the family, the the patriarch, he is yeah. he is phenomenal, and you know by Duna, the the brother, uh, the alcoholic brother, who I, I believe is supposed to be the youngest, or uh, I, yeah, I think they're both supposed to be younger than Song Kang Ho's yeah, Song character because he's kind of the like screw up oldest. Yeah, um, his his character Gong Du is. Pathetic. He was, yeah, he He's, was like really smart as a kid, and then something happened to him, and he sort of fell out of love with life, and ended up staying at the food, you know, the food stand with his dad, yeah. um, and just kind of yeah, lazed around for most of his life. You you have characters that at a certain point seem very like they could be very silly because you have. You know, a grandfather who owns a food stand yeah. and is very, uh, he's very, he's, he's, he, you feel like just cra- classic grandfather in a lot of ways. Yeah, the way that he acts. Weird, way, kooky grandpa. Yeah, and just has way too many, like, connections with people <laughs> that, you know, obviously he, he's, obviously believes that he has these connections, but ultimately it could just go nowhere depending yeah. on it. You have, yes, the oldest son played, son played by Song Kong Ho, who is, just pathetic but at the same time as you watch the film you realize just how earnest and how in all honesty just profound the man can actually be where he's in a world that doesn't really want him and he is still fighting for the things that he loves and cares about and doesn't give a shit if no one cares right he's gonna go for it regardless and then you have his younger siblings who is you know, an esteemed bronze medalist in archery. And the only, and then his younger brother, the youngest, who is the only one that actually went to college, but to add more social commentary to it, 
is not using his degree because they can't find a job. Yeah, he's in a similar situation to the protagonist of Which Barking again, Dogs. Another pill I don't want to swallow or talk about or yeah, really yeah, unpack yeah, that yeah. in any way, but it is just so much fun to see this dysfunctional family. Like, the first time you see them all together, it is just immediate how just dysfunctional they are. Yeah. You you can't get across any better in terms of dysfunction amongst a family than someone drop kicking another family member in public. <laughs> and that happens and it's hilarious and sad and also like, what the fuck is going on yeah. with this? Yeah. They ultimately end up crying on a ground together in unison. <laughs> and it's like, this is our this is our these are our heroes. Yeah. These are our unlikely protagonists. And again it's something where I think Bong Jun Ho just phenomenal as a storyteller sees the potential in those unlikely protagonists because he talks about like he's like with films like this and it's like no offense to films that do this but like usually when it comes to monster movies like this it's like the scientist saves the day or like the hot military guy right yeah it's never gonna be somebody like song kong ho Or like Baiduna. It's not going to be somebody who is just a normal person or somebody who is of the lower class Mm -hmm. who is just, you know, pushed to their extremes that they have to. The only thing they can do to basically fight for survival is to literally fight this tadpole monster from Han River. Yeah, yeah. And it just leads to a monster movie that is just, you don't have to be a fan of monster movies to fucking enjoy this film. This film is just fucking great. Well, and I think a lot of that, it goes a long way that this movie is, I mean, despite being a monster movie, is pretty, like, small scale. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, the only reason that the monster is even, you know, the the only reason the protagonist can't just, like, get up and leave from where the monster is, is because their kid, you know, their their little um, sister is, uh, is, wait, is it sister or is it Song Kong Ho's daughter? It's uh, Song Kong Ho's daughter. Yeah. It's, His uh, daughter gets captured in the sale. first encounter with the monster. Mm-hmm. And they find yeah. out she's still alive and being basically held hostage by the monster. She's she's lucky enough to have survived an encounter with a monster. And then you see, again, she even has a tiny little arc in terms of character-wise where she goes from being like the typical teenager where she's like, Dad, I can't use this phone. It's too embarrassing to use in front of my friends. Like. Yeah. Classic 13-year-old, you know, daughter, understandable. And But when you ultimately see what she's gone through, she has become her own type of badass to the point where in the film where you're just like, at one point, you're just watching her tie random things up together. And you're like, why the <laughs> fuck is she doing this? And she makes a makeshift tightrope or yeah, tight, like makeshift rope, ladder yeah. for like a rope to try to get the fuck out of there. Right. And it's like, holy shit, like, no one's telling her to do this. <laughs> She's just instinctually just like, I. this is how, all I know how to get out of here. This is how we should do it. I've bide, I've voted my time. This is, uh, this is how we're going to do it. And it's just so much fun to watch the family members when it comes down to the, when the chips are down, what their true colors are. Because I think yeah. that's where you see the vulnerabilities, but also their strengths yeah and just well and you get to see them blunder their way through the entire thing but continue to to persevere and you know eventually be able to actually you know contribute as a unit 
Yeah, and I think the I think again this is something that you see in later Bong Joon Ho films, and definitely in Parasite. Where so if you like this aspect of Parasite, you'll definitely like right. this in Host. But like, you just see in this film Bong Joon Ho not looking down or kind of you know making fun of people of the lower class. He is genuinely making a film where the protagonists constantly are succeeding even even when they fail they they succeed in some way due to their ingenuity yeah well like, it's and, just yeah right and i mean honestly the kind of aside from the monster the real antagonist of the movie is like the kind of inept and callous government government that's you <laughs> yeah. know quarantining people and lying to people not giving people all the information, not letting people contact each other. God. Um, the, can we talk about, I mean, there's one thing we should definitely talk about as two Americans. we got to talk about the American representation of this film. Oh, it's, because it yeah. is, if not anti-American, at least a very critical. Which is crazy, because it's like, in this, like, Bong Joon-ho has talked about, like, he's never wanted this, he never made this film to be anti-American. Right, right. But, like, it is... He almost to a degree. The first American we see in this film is played by the late great Scott Wilson, which most people would know as Herschel from The Walking Dead. Yeah. He is the guy that ultimately, not aggressively, but basically pulls rank and forces the, the South Korean yeah. uh, mortician to throw hazardous chemicals down the drain. He's the cause of basically. He's the cause of what's about to come. Right. The second American you see in this film is a blonde hair, I believe just, you know, blue-eyed, you know, I would say your stereotypical kind of hero in a film like this. Yeah, he's your jock. Yeah, he's an army soldier named Donald, (laughs) who ultimately, at like his his time to shine, helped Sung Kong Ho, you know, save some people or try to fight the monster at one point. And does survive... For a while, yeah, right. In the film, and then the final American we get is this cross-eyed guy who just comes out of nowhere and is kind of patronizing to uh, Song Kang Ho's character Gong Du, and ultimately reveals to the audience <laughs> that for this entire film, when they thought you know they've been spreading the news that you know there's a virus that this uh yeah the creature monster, is giving yeah, off a which virus is yeah. why it's called the host yeah because it's apparently the host of a deadly virus you ultimately find out that the american government knows that there's no virus like yeah. they're just spreading that misinformation and it's just capitalizing on yeah that as a method of control and it's something that it's like this is a film that feels very much like Listen, I'm not trying, like, it's like Bong Joon-ho's like, I'm not trying to make this film to, you know, criticize how Americans, you know, handled the war on terror or the Iraq war or anything like that. But if you find those similarities, it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's I mean, he, I'm yeah, not surprised. He, he said he didn't want to. He didn't like to call it uh, anti-American, but that it's definitely critical I mean, of the, the, base the United of, States. I, and I yeah. mean, that's clear it, enough, even in the, I mean, the final yeah, act absolutely. is a race against time before Americans uh, intervene in South Korea and unleash Agent Yellow, a very thinly veiled metaphor for Agent Orange, yes. um, meant to be a, a chemical to kind of instantly wipe out the, the virus and the the monster and to purposely and also to make it even clearer how the monster is a byproduct of the of, of the american government yeah. just uh 
not really giving enough of a shit. Uh, Agent Yellow it comes out in this kind of weirdly shaped uh, kind of pod yeah. that is, you know, you know, not coincidentally, but is shaped like the first time we see the monster in the film. Oh, the tadpole. It, yeah, it's of, literally yeah. shaped the yeah. same exact way when you see that tadpole for the first time. So yeah, it's, it's having like in its, a capsule. Yeah, yeah, basically, it's creating a, a thing to kill the thing they created, yeah, right. <laughs> and ultimately doesn't kill it. Right. Like it, it definitely slows it down and harms it, but ultimately the it thing that get the job done. Yeah, the thing that kills it is our heroes, the Brock right. family. Right. The, the badasses and it's just a film and I think one of the reasons why I mean I personally am not giving too much away about all three of these films we are talking about big points throughout but like I think overall it's because I think all three of these films just really really warrant a watch like if you haven't yeah. already because it's like there's only so much we could talk about in terms of the greatness of these films that you just got to see to believe. Mm-hmm. Like this is, this is a film that makes a tadpole monster work so fluidly, yeah, <laughs> and also reveals the monster in broad daylight, which is fucking bold. Yeah, <laughs> especially when it's like you know you're working with effects that like. It's pretty clearly they knew all knew at a certain point. Like this film is going to be aged at some point, but like <laughs> I mean, we're, yeah, we're going full hog. Aside from a couple moments, an entirely CGI monster in yeah. 2007, which is designed by Weta Workshop, right. known for fuck, you just pick pick a film, pick a big budget right. film that's had involved, you know, from the MCU films to Lord of the Rings to the the Rise of the Planet of the Apes series with yeah. with circus like. They have had a hand in all that, and they were initially they Bong Joon Ho wanted to tap them for actual production and actually design and animate the monster, but I think they unsurprisingly they were too busy at the time when they're doing other stuff. So the effects are done by a company I've never heard of, but uh, the Orphanage right. that went out of San Francisco, which I don't know if they still exist anymore. But even with that in mind, I think the Orphanage do an incredible job. Yeah. with what they have and it's also clear that like you know they know exactly when to be practical and when not to be when it comes to the monster because like one of the only instances where the monster is practical it looks fucking great yeah it looks wonderful and i don't know is there anything else that kind of sticks out to you because again i feel like i'm taking up most of the time <laughs> well that's <laughs> okay i, I mean this, this you know yeah your your love is pouring forth and i i will say because i don't i think we got distracted talking about the actual movie which is our job wait hold on are you saying we get distracted yeah while talking about movies that's um preposterous but no i i did i back to the beginning of the conversation i did really enjoy this movie i think it's awesome and i mm-hmm. think if that wasn't clear from our discussion oh um, yeah oh yeah yeah i mean the, the family dynamic is awesome song kong ho is awesome the the grandpa is awesome but yeah i think the thing that really like drove it home for me was just all the 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 government commentary both mm-hmm. about south korean government and american intervention and that sort yeah. of thing i just loved all of that um and and that's you know that's going back to the kind of the kaiju roots the godzilla you know yeah. type stuff with it being a allegory for you know 
messing with nature and that sort of thing and being flippant and arrogant, mm-hmm. the arrogance of man and that yeah. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really enjoyed all of that. And uh, yeah, and it all is just carried so well by a, a really, really lovely ensemble family. And I also don't know if you know this, but a fun fact about this film that I'm going to love seeing the film in the future, but the daughter in this film to Song Kang Ho's character is the same actress that plays his daughter in Snowpiercer. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that until we watched that is it. interesting. We yeah. kind of looked, I looked into this more and I was I mean, like, I didn't, holy shit. I didn't really actively think about it during the host, but like, oh, yeah. I remember, th- you know, thinking she looked kind of familiar. Yeah. And there's a, there's a seven year gap between yeah. the host and Snowpiercer's release, so it's not surprising because like, I didn't even think about sure. that until right, I was like, oh shit, really? Well, then again, seems like Baiduna is in fucking everything and Song Kong Ho's in everything. And, you know, it's funny to say that out loud, too, because the most recent Song Kong Ho film that's beginning a lot of buzz, guess who's in it? (laughs) Baiduna. Like, it's... (laughs) I wonder if they're close, just because they've been in so so. much stuff together. They're phenomenal together. Yeah. And they also... They work together in Sympathy for Mr. Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Yep. Yeah. So it's like it's not too. like they haven't done a lot together. But. Yeah. And I think uh, this movie might be or was at the time the highest, the most success financially yes. successful South yeah. Korean film in the United States. So the the big thing about box office rise, the reason why we didn't bring it much up with the other two is because you know Barking Dogs Never Bite. Didn't was a make, flop, yeah. didn't make a lot of money. Memories of Murder, it was, you know, just a word of mouth. Like, the money that it made, it definitely made more than yeah, what the budget critical was. success. Yeah. And, and yeah. numbers-wise, it's kind of a little hazy as to how much. But with the host, considering how much this is probably, I think, the biggest crossover at the time for Bong Joon-ho worldwide, yeah. this film was made off of $12 million. Worldwide made 87 Yeah. That's all. That is phenomenal and for I a south korean film and 17 or 18 in the u.s alone which was the south korean record yeah and it would only be beaten i think by, by bong joon ho himself in 2019 with parasite yeah which is understandable because that movie is also in my opinion a five out of fucking five like yeah. the thing that's so great about bong joon ho and i think it again shines in all three of these films but i think is shines the most in the host of this trifecta is the fact that like the dark humor, the social commentary and the unsung hero aspects that he seems to really love to the point where it's nearly in every single one of his films leads to a monster film that it just excels in all three of those aspects where it's like even something as simple as a government agent slipping in a school gym and then trying to keep his composure is fucking hilarious. (laughs) Just the way that it is introduced and set up. And something like, you know, Song Kong Ho's character, since he has to be in quarantine, having full-blown conversations in, like, a zipped-up bag or, like, in a plastic kind of sheet (laughs) around him. And it's like he's shoving his face through it and... It's just such – it makes sense as to why this is, like, a lot of people's introduction to uh, Bong Joon-ho because it's just – he is – he is just so – he shines the most, I think, in this film. And he shines a lot in Memories of Murder, but it's pretty clear as well. It is a, you know, touchy subject matter. You don't yeah. want to go full tilt in certain aspects. Well, as with the host, 
Well, it is based off a real event. It's not fully based off of that. So they can use that as inspiration and springboard it into what I would argue is not even just of this century, but it's one of the best monster movies ever. Yeah. And just really capturing as much as like the original Godzilla, just how important stories like this can be as well as kind of conveying the feeling of a na- of a, of a nation during times of like, you know, man-made destruction. Yeah. Right. The arrogance of man, as Andy said, and <laughs> it's very, it's, it's just very fascinating and just a blast to watch this film. And even though I know how the film ends, this climax felt like I was watching it for the first time. Cause there were just such few little things that I completely forgot what yeah. happened. Uh, like the fact that like there's a, there's a part in the very the first time that the monster shows up, Song Kong Ho tries to hit it with a sign and <laughs> can barely do it because there's a weight on it. Well, that is foreshadowed and comes back in a badass way right. in the final fight. And it's just a film that I think ultimately shows, like, I think one of the reasons why it's so much fun to do Rise of Director trilogies like this because with, you know, Gun, Zhao, Cummings. It shows that, like, when we get to a certain point like this with directors, it's, especially with their, and they're into their third film, you just see a confidence mm-hmm. that is not they've, saying, like, I'm the fucking best at what I do. It's no, more like, they found I, their voice and yes. they know how to communicate exactly what they want to communicate. And it's pretty clear the fact that from this point forward, from the host, you get Mother. Snowpiercer, Okja, Parasite. You get all these films that, like, even if they're not people's favorite Bong Joon-ho films, and even though not all these films are perfect, they scream, they bleed Bong Joon-ho, and ultimately you you see just how strong of a director he is because you get some phenomenal performances, not only from, you know, superstars from his homeland, but just phenomenal performances, if not best performances, yeah. from Americans. Yeah. I still think, and we're not going to go into a huge tangent with this, but, like, I still think Chris Evans is the best role I've ever seen Chris Evans in is Snowpiercer. I think I, yeah. I think that's, like, in the fact that that's a Bong Joon-ho film, just the yeah. fact that it's, like, there's that language barrier, yeah. and yet still is able to get that, kind of right. convey that yeah. phenomenal performance, even with that, and... Because of that, you know, when it comes to Barking Dog Never Bites, Memories of Murder, and with the host, fucking watch all three. Yeah. Now, if if it's hard to find them, I would say add it to your watch list and try to get <laughs> into it later. But highly recommend the host and Memories of Murder. And then if you're a big if you're a big comedy geek and you like weirder stuff in that kind of you know genre, and or if you are just a huge black dark comedy person, yeah, give Barking Dogs Never Bite a try. Because yeah. I think overall, again, it's it's hard not to watch a Bung Joon Ho film and be like, "Damn, this guy's got something." Yeah. <laughs> even if it's like you're not full, even if it's like you, it's the first time watching it, and it, there's just so much going on that you're not fully grabbing what he's throwing at you. Totally understandable because I feel like even at the basic level, people could just watch one of his films and be like, "Man, there's just this guy has something going on." Yeah. <laughs> And that's it. That's the rise of Bong. I'm, well, it's a bummer that we weren't able to do the Vengeance trilogy like we planned. We'll I'm get glad. There. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Again, we will get there, but at the same time, I'm glad with our 50th episode, we were able to talk about a trilogy that we both really enjoyed going through. Mm-hmm. 
and also having a trilogy where the weakest film is not absolute talk shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no pun intended. As opposed to our last episode where like pretty much the oh. whole trilogy was talk shit. <laughs> I think one of the best parts about having this much time between the Jurassic World trilogy and this is that I could forget that the last trilogy we did, we had to talk about Dominion. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So uh, in terms of what our next episode is going to be, our 51st, because now we're trucking along to get to yeah. that triple digit. Right. Uh, for our 51st episode, we are going to do, uh, again, another surprise. We're still, uh, we have some options. We're not fully set on one thing yet. Yeah. So we're going to wait and just kind of announce it on social media in the near future. But, we will have an episode two weeks from yes, now. Yes, two weeks from now, you know, August we will, 6th? Yes, on August 6th will be our next episode. We will definitely yeah. double-check and triple-check and make sure all three of the films <laughs> we want to watch, regardless of it's an American trilogy yeah. or a foreign trilogy, if we could watch them. Yeah, and we have but, to hold to that schedule because the following episode, two weeks later, will be coming up on our uh, our two-year mark. Yeah. So we'll have to do something something, We're gonna do something special for that. for that. Figure that out as well, which means August is going to be bumping. And we're excited. Yeah. We're excited because we, we do have ideas for later this year as well, trilogy-wise, mm -hmm. and what we want to do. And we're just we're excited that we got 50 episodes in, and here's to 50 more. Woo. And 50 after that, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> when we get to 100, we'll see. Yeah. But until uh, our next episode on August 6th, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.